0: Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica and I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. Dear 20-something started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful woman they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts we process internally, Dear 20-something is a space where listeners can hear insights, ask questions, and ultimately get advice from the woman they most admire. Stay on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Allie Kriegsman. Allie Kriegsman is the co founder and COO of Bulletin, a B2B wholesale marketplace backed by Y Combinator, Kleiner Perkins, and other top venture funds. Her mission is to help founders and small business owners, and especially women, redefine the word success. As a first time founder, Ali felt like she couldn't relate to the glamorous entrepreneurs on her Instagram feed who were peddling typical markers of success like glossy magazine covers getting verified on social media or hitting massive revenue milestones in reality she thought building something from nothing is a confusing and emotional challenge you sign up for every single day and it's a journey filled with more failures than wins it's unglamorous taxing and endlessly stressful and fuels the intense fear that if things don't work out you failed miserably ally believes that if you're launching a business from scratch and sign up for that struggle you are already ahead of so many others who would prefer to defer a dream stay stuck and wonder what if a recipient of Forbes 30 Under 30 and named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business, Ali has helped thousands of brands expand their distribution and sell in both offline and online stores all around the U.S. and Canada. She is a salesperson, self-taught publicist, marketer, and growth strategist, and has experienced scaling both bootstrapped and venture-backed businesses. Her first book, How to Build a Goddamn Empire, is the no-bullshit book on entrepreneurship you've always needed, and it is now available in hardcover and audio formats. Using the questions she's most frequently asked as her guideposts, Allie writes about her experience launching and growing bulletin directly from the trenches and features words of triumph, failure, and wisdom from 30 other women-owned businesses. The book has been featured and lauded by The Today Show, Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, and more, and her publisher, Abrams, has doubled down on the project and expanded publication globally to the UK, Australia, Finland, Denmark, South Africa, Germany, and a lot of other European countries. The book which just came out in april is already in its third print run in the us since the book's release and as part of her digital book tour ali has partnered with reese witherspoon's hello sunshine the female quotient rebecca minkov female founder collective yelp meetup shopify TaskRabbit, and so many more through her work ali has cultivated an extensive network of entrepreneurs including ali Love, sophia maruso jamie schmidt who is a past guest of our show jacqueline johnson and others and her digital book launch yielded over 15,000 attendees for her panels, workshops, and fireside chats. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Allie Kriegsman.
1: Erica, I had no idea you were going to use the bio to do an intro. I'm sorry, that was like the longest introduction ever. No, I love it. I appreciate (laughs) it, but I did not know it would be used for this use case. And nice to meet everyone. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh my gosh, of course. No, I was like, there's nothing I want to take out here. This is all valuable information. So I was like, I can't take any of this out, but I do love it. It's very thorough and it gives a great overview, obviously, of all the work you've done as an entrepreneur and then a recent author, which we will definitely get into. And welcome to Fireside. We're excited to have you here.
1: Thank you. I'm excited too. I've been thinking a lot about my 20s and
0: I can't wait to dive in. Awesome. Well, before we get into your 20s, we do like to start every show with a more fun and light question. So the question I have for you is, what is something new that you learned in the past week? It could be maybe a business you're really excited about, maybe one that just joined your platform, maybe a book you read, you learned something interesting, maybe a conversation you had, fun fact you learned. We always love a good fun fact. We had someone say a couple weeks ago that they learned how to make real rice. So it can be anything, but something new that you learned in the past week. So I just finished a book called Wanting by an
1: author named Luke Burgess, B-U-R-G-I-S. And the book taught me about modeling. Basically, when we're kids, all through the day we die, all through our adulthood, as humans, we kind of organically model ourselves after other people, whether that's the people closest to us in our lives, like our families or friends or celebrities or people that we see on Instagram, And I think this definitely plays a lot into what we're going to talk about about our 20s. But so much of the things that we want are actually not innate or organic to us. They are like very deliberately mapped onto us by the people in our lives. And so it's interesting because you can kind of think about the things you want and be like, oh, where was that modeled for me in my life? I've reconnected with a few people in the past few months where I realized I was a model for them and I had no idea. So love the book. Wanting by Luke Burgess. The phrase is mimetic desire. We basically model our desires about the desires we see other people having in the world.
0: That's so fascinating. I've actually seen you posting about that a good amount. I can tell it's definitely had like a pretty significant impact. How do you determine? And I don't know if they get into this in the book or if you know, but how do you determine what is something that's authentically what you want versus something you're mimicking from someone that you are admiring? And then is that even a bad thing? Like should you be aware of what is being modeled after other people versus what you truly want. Yeah. So
1: the point of the book is that it is really important and valuable to be aware. It's kind of like unlocking a new superpower because you're able to measure like superficial desires against what he calls thick desires. And the thick desires are desires that are the closest to being innate to you that you were born with or that you kind of developed through nature and nurture. But the point of the book is you decide to want what you want, that we actually have some control over the things that we want. So by knowing like when you're modeling yourself and when you're kind of adopting superficial desires because you see other people have them and measuring that against what it feels like to feel truly fulfilled, are really happy when you accomplish something or do something that taps into a thick desire. By knowing the difference, you're basically able to opt in and out of superficial desire rather than letting it consume you.
0: I love that. So it sounds like the awareness piece is what he's like really saying is super important. And then you can have control once you have awareness.
1: Exactly. And I fully, fully feel like after reading the book, the way I live my life day to day is fundamentally different. And I don't say that or feel that way about most books. I feel like it takes a lot to like change how you actually think about your life. And I think the book did a really incredible job. And I'm telling everyone I know to read it.
0: Well, thanks for the heads up. We'll definitely link that in our show notes too. But that sounds incredible. I love stuff like that. And it's rare you read a book now that has something so novel and interesting. Like I feel like a lot of the stuff that's out there is a bit redundant. So for you to feel like it was so eye opening and life changing. It's really, really cool. So thanks for that. I appreciate it. So before we get into your 20s, we're going to obviously deep dive. I do think it's important to start at the beginning just to get a little bit of context about how you grew up, what you wanted to be. So when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? And did you ever think that you would become an entrepreneur?
1: I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was six. It was something I did in my free time since I was a kid. As soon as I could use the computer, I would Like, switch off between playing putt putt, which was like a computer game where you could take this car to space. (laughs) And I would switch off between playing putt putt and like writing short stories. And I think I was really lucky in that my mom encouraged my writing at a super early age. So she would like take the things I wrote on her computer and then print them and laminate them, which was like a very early way of her kind of validating my interest. And I want to say that like, by the time I got older and hit like sixth grade, so I think you're like 11 or 12 when you're in sixth grade. For some reason, I decided to start like separating myself from wanting to be a writer. I remember that was the first time in school, where, in our yearbooks, we had to write down what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I kid you not, Erica, I wrote that I wanted to be a ballerina, which
0: like... Oh my gosh, you're like, that does not track at all.
1: I want to say it's an equally winding path to becoming a ballerina as it is a writer, right? It's not like I wrote like lawyer, for example, where it's like a bit more straightforward. But to be totally honest, I wanted to be a writer since I was a young kid. And I actually, in pursuing entrepreneurship as a young adult, I distinctly remember a day when I... Kind of mourned and like had a funeral for my dream of becoming a writer because I felt that those two things were directly in conflict with one another. And Bulletin had really taken over my life. And I was in more of a kind of sales, marketing, growth, strategy role and hadn't really been writing that consistently. So, me eventually writing a book about entrepreneurship is a very beautiful marriage of the two things that have really defined my life, I would say. But I definitely walked away from wanting to be a writer as I got older, because I felt like it was a really hard journey. My parents were, my dad was a writer, and it was a really volatile career. So I've, I don't know, my brain was like, let's do something stable. I'm going to start a business.
0: I was going to say you picked the other very not stable option, which is <laughs> building a business. It makes no sense. But they, I guess they're both extremely, extremely creative. And like you said, you found a way to blend them because now you, you, know, you wrote a book about entrepreneurship. So I think people surprise themselves with how they can actually combine their interests. Like, I think especially when you're younger, you, you think so one dimensionally, like I will be a firefighter, I will be a cook, I will be a dancer. But like when you get older, you're like, wait a sec, I could like market for publishers, do marketing for publishers, or I could write copy for social posts of a startup I like. Like you can think about ways to combine. And I think that's really cool that, You started to do that obviously with the book in the most obvious way, writing a book about entrepreneurship, which is what you know the most. Definitely. And
1: that's something I talk about with. I have a younger brother. He's five years younger than me. I don't know. I try to keep like young people in my life. I'm only 30, but here I am being like, I'm elderly. I need the youth keeping me fresh. But I talk about this with a lot of like mentees and just like younger friends. Like, I think there's been this big shift in Gen Z where the multi hyphenate life is a bit more normalized and standard than it was when I was younger, even though I'm just like five or six years ahead of Gen Z. But I definitely think like the younger you are, I agree with you, Erica, like the more black and white your career seems where it's like, I'm going into finance, and that's what I do, or I'm going to be a lawyer. And that's what I do. And like, there isn't really an understanding of the wide range of jobs out there and the different ways that you can blend your skills and your strengths and your interests to kind of create a hybrid career that is custom fit for
0: you. Totally. And I think that's exactly why like, we wanted to start the show too, is to say like, everyone kind of starts off thinking, I'm going to do this one thing. And then when you actually look throughout their 20s, they have all these really valuable jobs that they have. Meg Jay, she's a therapist who was on our show. She calls it like identity capital, like this idea that you just like gather all these experiences that add to your identity. And They don't need to be linear. They often aren't linear and they'll all come together into all the things you do moving forward. So I think it's a great viewpoint and I'm I'm glad to hear that you're a shining example of that. So we're going to hop away from your childhood and get more into college. So at the start of your 20s, I know you decided to go to the University of Pennsylvania, which is obviously an incredible school. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you decided to go there and then what your major was and how you decided that? So I
1: actually didn't really decide to go to Penn, to be totally honest with you. And I don't cover this in my books. So is like behind the scenes content. I wanted to go to Barnard and I wanted to study acting in English. I wanted to live in New York. I had a dream of not only becoming a writer ever since I was little, but of moving to New York. My family is from New York originally. I was born in New York. We left New York when I was about a year old. And the two big things on my vision board since I was a little kid were become a writer, move to New York. So I wanted to go to Barnard. I actually was enrolled in Barnard. I had a roommate and everything. And then I got off the wait list at Penn. And my mom, who was the first person in her family to go to college, her siblings and her were the first in her family to go to college. She was like, you got into Penn, like you need to go to Penn. It's an Ivy League school. So You know, I'm 18, but my parents and I were both paying for it. And I definitely saw the fact that it was Ivy League as this like shiny, you know, special thing and something I could lump into my identity. And so, yeah, I actually disenrolled from Barnard and enrolled in Penn off the wait list. And I majored in modern Middle Eastern studies. And that was because I went to Jewish day school my whole life. And I was fed a very specific narrative about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and not to turn this into a political conversation, but there was like a seminar my senior year in high school called the Israel Seminar, where they basically feed you lines that you can bring onto college campus to defend Israel against people that are pro-Palestinian or like Arab people. And there was just this like demonization of, the Middle East outside of Israel that didn't sit right with me. And this was also like, you know, post 2001, post 9-11, like our government was kind of doing the exact same thing. And I can't explain it, but there was something about it that just didn't feel true. Like I kind of felt like I was being brainwashed in a way. So initially when I got to Penn my freshman year, I just took as many courses as I could on different parts of the Middle East, on Islam, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know, taught objectively in a secular environment versus at a Jewish day school. Um, And I just became obsessed with that part of the world and kind of like correcting what I saw as a very biased education. And so I didn't really have like ulterior motives about my career when it came to what I majored in. I just pursued what I found interesting and what kind of made me like intellectually ravenous. Like I was never bored studying that stuff. But then by my senior year, I had, um, spent college minoring in consumer psychology in Wharton, which is basically like the marketing minor that you can take in the normal college that it's like the marketing minor within the business school. And I was one credit away from completing my consumer psych minor at Wharton, which would have looked great for my resume. But I realized that if I took like four classes, my last semester of senior year, I could actually graduate with a creative writing minor. So again, I kind of leaned into what felt like just interesting and attractive to me career aside, like I really wanted to spend my last semester of school, like writing and reading and doing creative writing, because I was paying for it. Like I took out a ton of loans to go to college and I was like, this is gonna give me the best possible end of college experience versus like this Excel math, like marketing math course in Wharton. So I graduated with a modern Middle Eastern studies major and a creative writing minor, and one credit away from the consumer psych minor in the business school.
0: That's so fascinating to hear you talk about how you found modern Middle Eastern studies because of a class from senior year. And I think also your philosophy about how you picked your major and minor is so refreshing. I actually felt a similar way. Like I was like, I don't want to actually have any minor because I just want to take classes that I'm interested in. Because like you said, you pay so much money. I can't even imagine having to feel so pigeonholed and taking so many classes. So that's amazing that you decided to just take what you were interested in, you know? And even if it didn't have as much, it wasn't as applicable to your future career, you enjoyed it. And that's what college is all about, especially when you're at an institution like Penn where you have the best, you know, I'm sure the top people in Middle Eastern studies are all teaching there when you were going through it yourself, and let's say maybe these minors like consumer psych and creative writing, maybe have like, a bit more of like a career implication versus like modern Middle Eastern studies. I mean, unless you're going to go, I guess, be a lawyer or be a professor, maybe a little bit less so. My so, mom thought I was going to become a diplomat the entire time. I was- I'm like, what is that career path? But what were you thinking? Like, were you at all thinking about career ambitions at that time? Because obviously, you were an ambitious person. But were you thinking about what that looks like after college? Or were you just really trying to pick the classes that you were interested in. And you thought, I'll figure that out later.
1: I would say it was a mix of both. The reason I like love this book that I mentioned earlier wanting about mimetic desire is like, I definitely think I was driven by mimetic desire while at Penn, like the business school in Wharton, like set the cultural tone of the school. Like if you weren't going into finance or consulting, or, you know, becoming a lawyer, Penn didn't really understand you. The entire resourcing at Penn was built around the business school and like on-campus recruitment. There was no on-campus recruitment for creative jobs. It was like on-campus recruitment to work for a consulting firm or to work a corporate like retail job in buying at Bloomingdale's or to go into finance. So I think the fact that that was the undercurrent at Penn kind of kept me in that marketing minor for four years. Like, as I said, I dropped out of that minor once I realized I was spending my tuition no matter what. And it was my last semester at Penn and it was kind of a Hail Mary to like pursue what my heart wanted versus what I thought I should be doing. So the fact that I was in that marketing minor within the business school for four years, almost four years, I think speaks to the fact that I was definitely concerned about my career. I thought that as a writer that was entrepreneurial and creative, like I was the business manager of my acapella group. I worked for small businesses during my summers in college. I thought like marketing made sense for me and that, I mean, I have run and overseen marketing at my company, so it definitely ended up being relevant to some extent. But I definitely think like my heart was with wanting to study what I got addicted to and obsessed with and what kind of called to me. But my head was definitely trapped in a cycle of like, what's going to get me a job after college. The other thing I'll say about Penn, and I think a lot of schools are this way, is like you're basically, at least at the time, like you were a pariah if you didn't have a job offer by the time you graduated. So everyone's senior year is just like scrambling to get a job offer. So I did on-campus recruitment, Erica, and I actually ended up getting a job as an asset manager at like a finance firm, like a family shop. And I signed the offer and everything. And then again, last minute, Hail Mary, like exactly what I did second semester, swapping my marketing minor for a creative writing minor that would put more work on my plate, but be more interesting to me. I ended up going to the firm for orientation Saw what my day to day would be like taking this asset management job. And even though I didn't have an alternate job or a backup and knew that it might turn me into a pariah because I didn't have like a cushy job lined up for after school, I freaked out. And I remember pacing on the roof of my boyfriend's frat house at the time and calling HR at the firm and telling them I wanted to cancel my offer. And I reneged on the
0: offer. Oh my gosh. That is a wild story. So you accept this offer second semester. There's obviously all this pressure. Like you said, you're at Penn. How did you get the opportunity to see what the day-to-day would be like? I feel like that's also so rare because so many people sign things blind. Like, I think I want to do consulting. I think I want to do finance. I think I want to do marketing, whatever it is. And they just sign away. Like, I will be starting after I graduate. How did you get to see it before you had to actually commit to it? So what happened was I took the job
1: and it was for a great salary. Like the job I ended up actually taking after school was less than half of the salary that they were giving me for this
0: job. That's always how it is. It's always like less than half, but you, your heart is happier. Okay. So we'll get there.
1: Yes. And I was like a work study kid and I had been on financial aid making $10 an hour at Penn. So I was like, I definitely think what attracted me to the asset management job in the first place was like the cachet of being in finance, coming out of Penn, not wanting to be a social pariah and the salary and the financial stability. But basically, I even though I accepted the job, I found myself like applying to other jobs. So what happened was I was in New York. I was interviewing for the job that I eventually took and they had asked me to come to the office to like get my orientation packet and they wanted to show me my desk. And I saw my desk and I met all the people I'd be working with. And I was like, these are not my people. I am not sitting at this desk. This is not what I'm going to be doing. And I just like actually got to kind of like live in it for even like 10 minutes. But my gut was, I mean, I was running away as soon as I opened the door to that office. So I think I just got very lucky where I got like a real life moment to project myself into the future, realize that there was a ton of misalignment. And that's what triggered me, you know, making the call and reneging on on the job.
0: Well, I'm sure you're grateful now that they asked you to go to the office because you had quite a change, you know, obviously after that point. So you end up after saying no to that job. I know you ended up doing marketing at Condé Nast as one of your first jobs out of school. Can you tell me a little bit about what drew you to that job? Like you said, I think that's the one you're referring to. Maybe that paid like less than half. But how did you enjoy it? I personally think, you know, as an outsider, marketing at Condé Nast sounds like many people's dream jobs. But can you tell me a little bit about like what your job was like, how you got it and how you liked it?
1: So the way that I got the job was I was in an acapella group at Penn. As I said, I was the business manager and I was an alto. And it was like the 25th reunion of the acapella group. And there was this woman there who was also an alto. And there's this like alumni song that you sing during every anniversary. It's, I mean, if you've seen Pitch Perfect, you understand how like pukey eye roll all of this is, but it is what it is. And I was teaching her the alto line and she just turned to me and she's like, I'm looking for a new assistant in marketing at Condé Nast. Within five minutes of meeting me, she was just like, I really like you. I want to give you the job. And I was like, what? And I was like still in process, kind of like about to cross the finish line with this asset management firm. And I just spent the rest of that weekend, you know, hanging out with her, learning from her, learning about the job, but it was her hire to make. So it was reporting directly into her and then the guy that she reported into the VP of the department. So she brought me in after i had gotten the asset management job to interview. I met the current coordinator I met the other boss, Pat, the VP, and I met with Allison again. And then within like a week, I had my job offer. The only problem was that I had to move to New York like right away after graduating because they needed me to start ASAP. So I graduated on like a Thursday and I started my job on a Monday. And I mean, I didn't like it. It was really bureaucratic it's a massive company. It's like a legacy media company. You know, they own Vogue and the New Yorker and Allure, GQ. And there was just a lot of red tape and it moved really slowly. And I think that's kind of when I realized that I was an entrepreneur because I just wanted more to do. I wanted to like help Condé Nast go mobile. Like this was in 2013 when Refinery29 existed, they were digitally native, like BuzzFeed's listicles were a really big deal. And Condé was so behind. But I was like 22. They didn't want me to help them. I I mean, frankly, I probably couldn't have helped them. I was so young, but I thought I knew so much at the time, of course. But I left within like 10 months, because it just moved too slowly. And I was really, really bored.
0: I totally hear you. I think that's also why you now run a startup, because you didn't like the pace. That makes perfect sense. Did you enjoy the marketing side of it? Because you obviously had studied consumer with Psych. I know you didn't love it that much. And I think when I think of Condé Nast, I think of like writing. I think of, you know, they have all these publications. There's a lot of editors at Condé Nast, you know, like, I'm like, oh, that maybe would be a nice blend for you. But did you not like the marketing side of it? The marketing side, I think the problem
1: with it was we in my department were still selling like banner ads and like advertorial. Like, you know, when you look at a magazine and there's like a page in the magazine that is like trying to pretend like it's a part of the magazine, but it's paid for. Totally. That's like what my department did.
0: So it was almost like too outdated. It wasn't even like real marketing that you could evaluate. You were like, this isn't even the same marketing that anyone else is doing. Exactly then that makes a lot of sense. So that feeds into like the bureaucratic piece. It's just like, it's just so outdated. You needed something more fresh and young and fast paced. And so you left Condé Nast, I know, like you said, after 10 months and you did sales at a startup. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got that opportunity and how you liked it?
1: I worked in like a section of the Condé Nast building when they were in Times Square that was super isolated. And even though I worked for Allison and Pat, my desk was like right outside of Pat's office and it was just the two of us. So Pat ran the entire department. He like ran corporate marketing for Condé. And I would basically like listen in on his meetings because I would ask to. There were certain meetings I obviously couldn't, but I definitely think something I did at Condé Nast, which I recommend anyone in their 20s do at their company is I just asked to shadow as many people as possible and as many meetings as possible because I felt really bored and I had nothing else to do. But like, I also understood that I was still navigating my own career and where I wanted to end up. And I felt like by seeing other people in action, I could maybe like get a glimpse of which one of them I would want to be. So I would shadow Pat's meetings. And one of the meetings I shadowed was a meeting with Contently, which is the startup I ended up working at. And I was just really compelled by the pitch. It was basically like an editorial team on demand. I knew because of working at Conde Nast that they had trouble like finding talent quickly to like do those advertorials or do these like marketing videos and contently came in to pitch our department to work with them. And Conde Nast decided not to work with them, but I decided to LinkedIn message the woman who I saw pitch, Pat, immediately after. And I was like, I'm trying to get the hell out of here. I think you're really compelling. I think the business is compelling. I like candidly don't know like if you have any roles open or where I would even fit. But like, I don't want to work here anymore. And like, I want to work for you. And within a week, I had a job offer.
0: Good for you for for actually doing something about it. Like noticing that they were awesome and then actually reaching out instead of just like, you know, complaining and staying in the day to day. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: I think that like for me, I once I'm ready to move on, I'm good at kind of sniffing out and hunting out the next opportunity. And so, yeah, I left. I ended up working at Contently in Sales. I quickly grew to be the number one salesperson while I was there. I went from being an SDR, which is like a super entry-level sales role. It's just like data entry and outreach to a sales development associate to a sales executive within a year and a half. I grew my salary from 40K a year to 150K, including my commissions within that year and a half. And before that, I was making 30K at Condé Nast. So within like two years, I went from making 30K to 150K.
0: That's insane. And I also think that we always hear this now and maybe it wasn't as talked about then, but like if you're really good at sales, then you should be an entrepreneur. And so I'm sure people were probably telling you that, like I, I'm sure content, Contently wanted to keep you. But like in the back of your mind, you were probably at this point starting to realize like, oh, wow, I really can sell whatever you put in front of me. And maybe that's, is that, would you say that was kind of the start of like, oh, maybe I actually do want to have my own thing because I am good at this. I am number one at this. How can I make even more money and build my own team? It's so interesting you asked that because
1: I actually think what happened was when I was at Condé Nast in my head, I was like, I'm in marketing, but I'm going to transition to editorial. And I would always ask about it. I'm like, how do I get moved on to editorial? And that just doesn't happen. You can move within publications, but to go from the business side of a media company to the editorial side is very rare. And then I was like, oh, well, if I go to Contently, like they have this network of freelancers, maybe I'll start out in sales and then I'll like learn how to make 100K as a freelancer in Contently's network and then I'll leave and I'll become a freelancer And then Alana, my co-founder and our CEO, approached me and she's like, hey, I know you're a writer. I'm thinking of starting this like shoppable newsletter called Bulletin. And would you want to maybe write for it? And so the exit for me mentally out of Contently into whatever I did next was not, I'm great at sales. Let me sell my own thing. It was actually the attempt to return to being a writer again, which is like a theme in my life, as you can see. And so when bulletin started out it was like a writing project for me. I would interview cool brands, I would go to their studio, take original photos of them, write like long form editorial pieces about them or long form interviews with them, and then we would basically like blast this newsletter out once a month. It was like a drop and then people could shop the brand in the newsletter and then shop our e-commerce site. So No, I would say the direction was less like let me keep swimming in sales, but sell my own thing. It was more like get me the hell out of sales and let me start writing again. Because I've always been very good at sales, but I don't necessarily like like it. I find it to be a bit repetitive, especially at a tech company. Being a sales executive is very repetitive. It's not super creative. But then eventually with Bulletin, I kind of found a hybrid role that is like part sales, part marketing, part like writing and very creative that it's not nearly as repetitive as like an enterprise sales role at a big startup.
0: That is so fascinating to hear you explain it. I mean, it makes sense that you had this passion for writing all along. And so even as you're doing these business roles, you keep thinking about when can I do a more writing thing? When can I get on editorial? When can I do more of the freelance? Which is so interesting because only with hindsight can you see that you were obviously having this entrepreneurial urge and this writing urge, and now you're kind of doing both. But maybe while you were in it, you were really just seeing the writing thing. And that's why you were excited about the Bulletin. Can you tell me a little bit more about, so obviously you started Bulletin in your mid-20s, which is crazy. And we'll get into that. But what led you to start Bulletin and become a co-founder? Like you said, it started off as like a project, but what led you to actually become like a co-founder in the company and make that leap? So, yeah, it initially started out as me helping Alana.
1: And I was so amazed by her. I mean, we were talking about like mimetic desire and models at the beginning of the conversation. And I think she definitely became a model for me very quickly. She's four years older than me. I really looked up to her. I loved the way that she carried herself, I admired her work ethic. I kind of had like a girl crush on her at Contently. She was the number two salesperson when I was there. And I think we both just saw a lot of potential in each other and kind of formed a very natural bond when we started working on Bulletin together as this fun project. So what ended up happening was, and how I became co-founder is, Contently actually moved me to California to help run West Coast sales. And I was 24. (laughs) So they were expanding. They were trying to pursue more mid-market and startup tech customers, which was the vertical I ran. And so they wanted to move me to San Francisco. I negotiated them moving me to LA, which is where I grew up. And basically, I kind of detached from the Contently Work environment, just like only wanted to work on Bulletin. I kind of started realizing that I was like putting off my Contently Work And trying to pursue more and more brands to interview. Like I wanted to like scale up the number of newsletters we were dropping. And that's really where my focus started to go. And Alana at the same time, like wanted to quit contently and work on Bulletin full time. So she was running point on trying to find investment of some kind, like just trying to find a way that we could build Bulletin full time. And in that process, she decided to apply to Y Combinator. And at the time, by now, I was like editor-in-chief of Bulletin. I wasn't just like, you know, a freelancer helping Alana. So I had already kind of leveled up in that regard. But she basically just called me and was like, we're applying to this tech incubator. They're asking who the co-founders are and what our equity split is. Like, do you want to be my co-founder? And I said, yes. It was like supernatural. It felt like an organic extension of the way the relationship had already developed. So that's pretty much it. It was just like a, a phone call and she was upfront with me. She's like, you know, this is going to be like a five to 10 year journey that we take together. It's not going to be easy. I know that you're a really creative person and you have other interests and outlets and like, I'm not saying you have to give those things up, but like this is going to become very all consuming and like, is this what you want to do? And there was no other answer, but yes. So that's kind of how things became
0: formal. That's such a cool story. And the fact that it was so casual. I mean, I feel like you hear all the time, like it's, you know, back and forth negotiation. Oh, I struggled to find a co-founder, but it was just such a match made in heaven. And obviously you guys have, you know, continued to work together, which is amazing. Can you tell people a little bit more about what you guys do at Bulletin? And then we'll talk a little bit more about it, but I'd love, you know, I know we say B2B wholesale marketplace. If you're in business, you're like, got it. But if you're not in business, you're like, what? So, could you say a little bit more just about like what you guys actually do as a business? So, I should preface that by
1: saying for like two and a half to three years, Bulletin ran a series of pop-up markets and then we ran retail stores. So the wholesale marketplace really emerged from our experience as retailers. So what Bulletin does is we basically help retailers think of like a boutique, even like an online only retail store. In many cases, we now work with like creators who are selling product on Instagram or TikTok. They need to get their inventory from somewhere and they get their inventory from Bulletin. So as I said, like a boutique, like a gift shop in your neighborhood, the greeting cards that they sell, the candles, the notebooks, the ceramics, they can order those items wholesale from Bulletin's marketplace. We work with about 2,100 brands now So retailers can basically find great inventory from all of these different brands and check out with them with one seamless checkout experience. And, you know, we work with like fitness studios that get like water, you know, bottles from Bulletin. We work with creators that are selling apparel through their Instagram stories and they're getting it from Bulletin. So think of like anyone that is selling inventory to you as an end consumer. There's this entire wholesale market and ecosystem that exists behind the scenes where that seller gets their inventory from. And so Bulletin is one of the ways that they get their inventory. And for brands like the 2100 brands that we work with, we basically act as a really affordable, streamlined, digital way for them to increase distribution. So if you're a beauty brand and you launched on Shopify in the last two years, you know, Shopify is helping you run your e-commerce store. They're helping you with, you know, shipping and logistics and they're sending order confirmations to your customers. But as that beauty brand, if you wanted to sell into your local boutique or a, you know, clean beauty retailer that only sells online without Bulletin would have to like pay to go to a trade show or hire like a wholesale rep or join a showroom. But with Bulletin, you can just go live with us we kind of build your wholesale business for you from scratch. And then you can start selling your inventory directly to those retail partners and kind of launch your distribution business by joining our platform.
0: It's so genius because it streamlines everything. And I feel like a lot of people don't know that a lot of businesses don't actually like make their own inventory. They can just buy it from someone else, like a shirt that you love from a boutique that boutique probably didn't make that or may not have made that shirt over in China. They're just buying it wholesale from you guys. I don't think a lot of people know that, that like not every business has to build something completely from scratch, which I think is also really interesting when we talk about like entrepreneurial journeys and stuff that, you know, you don't always have to start from absolutely square one. You can like use resources like yours and like other wholesalers to help boost you to start so that you're not actually like having to build something from nothing
1: exactly and i think we're just seeing that in general i mean bulletin has grown really significantly this year i think one of the reasons is these store owners used to have to go to physical trade shows to like meet these suppliers and with covid trade shows took a massive hit and so these you know store owners and merchants could only use digital means of finding and sourcing inventory So I think there's been like a rapid adoption of digital marketplaces like Bulletin in large part because of the pandemic. But I think the second thing is with like the great resignation and people quitting their jobs en masse, and especially with the rise of Gen Z and this kind of turnkey entrepreneurship that I feel like Gen Z has really popularized by becoming entrepreneurs, creators, influencers, retail business owners, the barrier to entry to launch a business is so low now. Like all you need is a Shopify store. You pay a low subscription every month for it. You just need to get the inventory and put it on the store. And like, bam, like you have a retail business. Like I know a ton of younger kids that like sell inventory on Amazon and make like five figures a month. Like it's crazy. Shopify added, their merchants grew, like their merchant count grew by 60% in the last year Etsy, added 2 million new sellers to their platform in the last year. And I think we're just like at the very beginning of kind of everyone in in one way or another kind of becoming an entrepreneur. Not everyone is going to be a retailer. Not everyone is going to be a brand. We're seeing a lot of people monetize their content or digital courses. We see things like Patreon, OnlyFans, et cetera. So I think we're just at the beginning and Bulletin Counts itself as very lucky that we get to help businesses grow and expand and in many cases launch from scratch by giving them the inventory they need to fill their storefront whether it be a physical store an online store or a social channel.
0: Yeah and that you have such a diversity of people people can go to like you have 2100 plus brands. So any kind of store you want to start like you said you want to do fitness studio you want to do a clothing brand you want to do a something of different unique I'm sure you guys have that. So that's really really cool. I do have a question just about your role specifically that I'm curious about so I know you are the COO and that is obviously the chief operational officer and that is very businessy. It's lots of marketing, lots of sales, very businessy. Also can be creative too, but I'm so curious like what drew you to that title when you are a little bit more of like a writer and you maybe like chief creative officer, something maybe a little bit more that follows that like passion we've talked about. I'm just so curious to hear like what drew you to that COO title and maybe you've also made it your own, you know, maybe you are a little bit of a couple things, but I'd be so curious to hear a little bit more about that. I think my
1: first title at Bulletin was Chief Content Officer. And then as we kind of pivoted and evolved, and we started doing our pop up markets and then our stores and less content, frankly, I think that's when we turned it into Chief Operating Officer. In my mind, Chief operating officer really encompasses, to your point, a lot of different departments. So I oversee our customer success department, our merchandising department, our marketing department, and like our PR and comms. And I also do all of our copywriting for like our ads and things like that. But I also build workflows and set up systems. So, like, I set up our Customer relationship manager, Salesforce. I set up our marketing and sales ecosystem with HubSpot connected to Salesforce via Zapier. I kind of scoped out the parts of our platform, which is custom, that need to push into Salesforce so that we're collecting all the right data from our customers. So to me, COO is kind of like I'm a jack of all trades. Like there are certain departments that I don't oversee that are super businessy like finance, for example. But to me, COO, it means that I'm kind of like a Swiss army knife, I can be creative, I can also be very systems oriented, I can refine or fix workflows that are slowing us down. That to me is really what the title encompasses. And I think it definitely speaks to like, what I do within Bulletin and what I've always done. It's it's a figure it out kind of role, to be totally honest with you. It's like, just get your hands dirty and figure it out.
0: Yeah. And at least it's not boring. I feel like that's the one thing you've said consistently. It's like, oh my God, I just got bored. So for the entrepreneurs who are listening, and I'm sure many will, because that is a lot of who you speak to because of your book, and they maybe want to start their own business in their twenties, like you did, What advice would you give them before they start and when they should start that business? I give
1: this advice in my book. So I'm gonna cop it from the book and share it here. So much of the key to being a successful entrepreneur and that and like, that's whatever successful means like for me, through launching something from scratch, I've been able to Pay my own salary, pay the salaries of at this point, probably like almost a hundred plus people over the past few years with the different iterations of the business. I've been able to pay off my student debt. I've been able to publish a book. I've been able to work with a lot of like captivating, intelligent, powerful, hardworking people. So success to me isn't necessarily like I get acquired or I go public. Like I think everyone could use a redefinition of what success is, which is a lot of what my book is about. But in order to like reap the benefits of entrepreneurship, you need to stick with it and you need to be consistent. And so the advice I would give is like pick an idea or a problem or a customer that like you will get obsessed with. Pick something that is going to compel you to give it like an extra hour or two at night, even when you're tired. Because the pull to like watch British Bake Off or tune out or just like order sushi and be done for the night, that pull is always going to be there no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're working like a boring corporate job that you hate or running your own business, like you will get tired, like you will, you know, want to detach, you will want to quit, you will want to disconnect. So like, you really need to pick, as I said, like a problem, an industry or a customer that like is going to keep you engaged enough and excited enough to like eke out that extra hour every night. Everything is consistency. Everything is commitment. Nothing happens overnight. And so if you aren't working on something that you can give like 45 minutes to two hours to every other night, every week, then like it might not be the right idea for you. So that would be my biggest piece of advice is like pick something that you're excited to keep working on, that you're excited to learn more about, that you're excited to get obsessed about.
0: I love that. And I feel like that's also a pretty simple way to test it. If you really are passionate about something, give yourself a couple months and see if you can commit to that two hours every night or every other night. Like you said, you know, sometimes people give advice that's like, okay, but how do I actually do that and put that into action? But I think that's actually super, super tangible. And like for the people who are thinking about starting something now, just be consistent and commit to it two hours at the end of the workday and see if you can stick with it. And then if you can, like you said, maybe it's time to start it. Okay, so I do have one more generic piece of advice that I, you know, we ask all of our guests. This is the last question, and then I'll see if maybe we have time for just one more from the audience. But if you could say one thing to every 20 something in the world, entrepreneur or not, what advice would you give them?
1: I really felt like my early 20s through my mid 20s, even up through my late 20s, was very much marked by mimetic desire. I think especially with Instagram and social media, it got so much worse. Like we're all benchmarking our sense of success or the things we want to accomplish or the things we think we want or want to accomplish based on what other people are accomplishing and what other people are doing and what other people are showing off. I think that there's this natural impulse in your 20s to want to like be on the right path and in many instances, that means copying someone else's path who seems to have it all figured out versus kind of looking internally to understand what journey and what path feels the most authentic and true to you. So the general advice I would give to anyone in their 20s, and I'm doing this now is like, who were you before all of these influences? Like, talk to your parents, like talk to your best friends from growing up, like, what are the things that lit you on fire? Like, how did you spend your free time when you were like eight years old? Like, what would you think about or dream about when you were younger and you would let your imagination run wild? I feel like tapping into that kind of more pure, like unvarnished, like early version of you is going to help guide you and put you on the right path it's going to do a much better job than like looking on Instagram or next to you at like the kid in your finance class or like your cousin who everyone in the family like says is so accomplished. Like that's not going to put steer you in the right direction. So do the best you can to look internally and like reflect on the version of you that was in its purest form before it was kind of tainted by all of these outside influences. And like, let your love of that version of you guide you through that big, important decade of your 20s.
0: That's such great advice. I love that. It's definitely one of those things where it's like, oh God, you got to uncover some stuff. It's like, go to therapy, figure who you were when you were eight. But I think it's, it's so valuable, like you said. And I think that's really great advice. And then hopefully let that inner voice, that inner child, like you said, guide your decisions because you want to be your most authentic self and you want to do things that are going to make you happy and it's not going to be pleasing everyone around you. And I think also no one really cares what you're doing. Like people really just care about themselves. So you might as well live a life that's going to make you happy. You know, your inner child happy. Yes. Yes. Amazing. Thank you so much, Allie. Well, it's time for the Q&A portion of our show. Okay. It looks like we have a question from C. Thank you so much. How inspiring. I'm curious. Are you a Gemini? Yes. How funny is that? Because your creative writing personality is a certain type, if you will, stereotypically, right? More little introverted likes to sit quietly at the computer. And then your entrepreneurial startup side is nothing as satisfying. I gotta go at a fast pace. I gotta juggle a million balls. And I'm just wondering how you balance those two and how you knew that you would do both, I suppose. This
1: is such it's scary that you knew that I am in constant tension with myself I don't think I figure it out I often actually feel like I have two dueling personalities and what's extra interesting about it is my dad is a writer he's extremely introverted we are estranged I'm not super close with him anymore but he's like the introvert side of me And my mom is a salesperson and an entrepreneur and they were in business together for 20 years. And I so many times like I live my life feeling like I'm these two people wrapped in one. They ended up in a bitter divorce. So I feel like the internal tension between these two people living inside of me is it feels very real. I haven't figured it out. I I am in constant tension with myself. I try to write every day now. So I will wake up early. I will try to eke out an hour. I find that if I go too many days not being introverted and not taking time to retreat with myself, I get really just kind of like bitter and antsy. And like I get consumed with frantic negative energy. And then if I'm the opposite where I'm too introverted, I haven't seen enough people in a while. I haven't had FaceTime with my team. I haven't pitched the same exact thing happens. So I really just try to do both of those things as consistently as I can to kind of appease both of those conflicting beasts like living in my heart. But it is an ongoing battle. And I don't think I have it nailed quite yet.
0: You still have time and also isn't life about not nailing it. You know, it's like you just got to constantly be balancing the two sides. And that's all it is. And they're both so valuable, I'm sure. And, you know, like when you have your creative writing side influencing your entrepreneurship side and your entrepreneurship side influencing your creative writing side, you get the career you have. So it all works out. And that's so funny hearing about your parents too. Obviously unfortunate about the divorce, but that you have these like two very different sides in your body. I kind of imagine almost like not angel and devil, but almost like these two voices like yelling at you, like do it this way, do it this way
1: it really, really feels like, it feels genetic. Like it feels astrological in the Gemini sense for sure, which C picked up on, but like it definitely is something I've, I've felt since I was very young. So who knows, who knows where we go from here, but I love both sides equally. And I think it's just about nourishing them each and giving them both enough stage time, enough
0: face time. Absolutely, I love that. And it's nice too that this writing piece, you can actually have a practice for it and then like you're building a business, so you have a practice for that more entrepreneurial side too. I feel like sometimes people have interests and passions and it's not so practical to practice it. But the fact that you can get out your book or you can get on a team call, you have these very tangible ways where you can express that side of you, which is really nice. Ali, thank you so much. This has been so enjoyable. I could talk to you forever about this stuff. I find it so fascinating and hearing about your journey throughout your 20s and your you know, ambition to start your own thing in your 20s is just incredible. Can you let everyone know where they can follow you on social along with where they can find Bulletin if they want to work together. I'm sure there, you know, there'll be many brands reaching out. And then, of course, where they can buy your book, How to Build a Goddamn Empire, which is amazing.
1: And I should say, Erica, you're a fabulous interviewer. It was so, so great Stop. chatting with you. You seriously do an absolutely incredible job. And now I'm just excited to like spend my holiday break listening to more of these episodes.
0: Stop, you just made my week. That's very kind. Thank you.
1: No, seriously, you crushed it. I'm like, I I also feel like I could talk to you forever. Everyone's like, okay, we don't need to know about the divorced parents. Like, can we go back to the like college major part?
0: No, no, no. That's the juicy stuff. I have to say, that's the stuff where now we paint a picture of you. Now we get it. We're like, oh yeah, that's her. You know, if you stay just too superficial, you don't get the meat, you know? Yes,
1: but you're good at like carving into the meat. So props to you. My... Instagram is at Ally Kriegs. That's A-L-I-K-R-I-E-G-S. You can buy my book, Everywhere Books Are Sold. It's How to Build a Goddamn Empire. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. There's an audiobook. I narrate the audiobook. You can apply to sell on Bulletin as a brand at bulletin.co, B-U-L-L-E-T-I-N dot C O. And you can sign up as a retailer there as well. And I'm excited to hear from you. If you want to DM me, my DMs are always open. I love chatting, creative writing, entrepreneurship, all things. And thank you so much again for having me. And I
0: wish everyone has a absolutely lovely night. Thank you so much. I will also say too, guys, if you go to the business section at any bookstore, look for the hot pink book. You cannot miss it. You did a great job with the color choice. It's like, I feel like it just stands out. It's so easy to find. So look for the hot pink book and it'll be yours. The assignment was Rihanna meets Elle Woods. It definitely gives off that vibe for sure. It's very striking. So it definitely stands out. So you will not be able to miss it. Well, if you guys enjoyed this conversation, please give us a follow over at Dear20something on Instagram and subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks, everyone.